Welcome to the Rethinking Revenue Podcast, where CEOs, revenue leaders, investors, and go-to-market experts share hard-fought lessons of success and failure as they've prepared their businesses to evolve beyond the status quo. Now, let's meet your co-hosts, Ed Porter and James Roris. Ed is a fractional chief revenue officer and founder of Blue Chip CRO. He helps CEOs fix revenue problems inside marketing, sales, and customer success teams. James is a CRO's secret weapon, creator of Wins Selling. He helps revenue leaders simplify sales success by developing cross functional go-to-market teams and establishing certified sales pipelines. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the show. All right. Well, welcome to the first edition of this podcast. We're, we're, we're here talking about just everything that has to do with growth. And I'm excited that my, my friend James Roars and I are, are talking through this. We've shared many a cigar, many a drink casually on patios, talking shop, and we keep coming back to a couple of these these challenges. So James, I'm here. I'm, I'm glad you're here with me and that we're sharing in this. I'm excited to finally get this off the ground. I think we've been talking about this for a year or so. So um, that's what we want to talk about this first episode is just why we're here, um, what we're going to be talking about, and really anything surrounding growth. So Jimmy, thanks for coming and thanks for doing this with me. Hey man, my pleasure. I can't wait to bring some of that energy and that vibe that we uh, were able to create on that, on the patio or around a cigar over two. So uh, let's see if we can do that. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's kind of tell everyone a little bit about, about us. Like how, tell us about your venture into sales and how you got here and what's kind of got you to the point where we're talking about the same things and helping clients with growth objectives. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I grew up fourth generation entrepreneur in a family business. And um, I mean, at the end of the day, it's how do you, What's the best way to become entrepreneurial if you don't want to start a business, have employees, et cetera? You know, back in the day when I joined sales, I, you know, the sales was the answer. I found a guy who was willing to mentor me and uh, the rest is history. That was back in 91 when I left grad school. So you I just did, dated yourself. You totally should have done yeah, that. Yeah, dude. Totally. <laughs> no, it's fine. Yeah, man. And, I, you know, and it's weird that you go, you get your grad degree and uh, get a sales job. But, um, you know, the grad degree gave me, uh, a business owner or executive or CEO's perspective on business and what drives business. And it gave me a chance to really understand the folks that I was selling to. So I right away was able to sell to C-level uh, decision makers and speak their language. And that really, without knowing it, really helped me kick it off. And the rest is history. Uh, but that's 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 the start, man. I think, And I think back to it, it's really what I talk most to folks about. How well do you understand what your buyer is going through, what their life is like, what they're feeling? what their challenges are, what their problems are, the better you understand, the easier it is to communicate and the easier it is to connect with those folks and then, you know, take the next steps. Yeah. Awesome. And that's, I think a hard for a lot of people, especially for me, it was a hard lesson to learn is to think about, take the ego out of it and think about your, your buyer and what does that mean and how do you align the processes? And that was hard for me. I struggled with that in the beginning of trying to make it all about me, right? You're just trying to out your product you just want people to buy and you don't really care about anything else and once you start taking the time to to shift that um a lot of things start uncovering i, I certainly see that today and in, in a lot of uh you know new greener types of sales reps as they get right into checklist like qualifying and it's like i'm qualifying you and it's it's not that's not it but um you know i think it's a good yeah it's a good realization so i kind of got started um i i love saying this so my resume looks like i can't make up my mind on what I want to do. <laughs> I, I worked for four different companies in four different industries, selling four different products and services. So uh, it's it's just been all over the place. But what I've attributed a lot of my success to is 
it's a lot of knowledge and insight throughout multiple different industries and understanding how people buy. How people buy software is different than how people buy hardware. How people buy services is different than how people buy $40 and $50, $60 products. So there's a lot of different buyers in those industries. And I think you can pull a lot of what works here, what works there, and start to develop better playbooks, better formulas, better processes on how to effectively help your buyer make the best buying decisions. Ultimately, that's what we're after, is to help them make the buy best buying decision. And the non-selfish salespeople are the ones who recognize that they may not be what the buyer needs. And there's a lot of power in that. So I think that's what I've attributed my, my confusion in my work history into understanding a lot of different industries. And, and, and that's what one of the things I've been valuing of how we met each other, but valuing a lot of people that I talk to is you learn a lot just through talking and conversations. And um, I think it brings us here today to, to talk about this because we're both adamant about growth. And it's, you know, there, growth doesn't mean like, 10x. You don't have to 10x your life. And, um, you know, there are people out there that want to do it. Great. There's no shame in that. But growth also can be very incremental and very small and short wins. And I think those are the things that can't be glossed over. So, you know, we, we talk about growth. There's You've in, inevitably helped plenty of CEOs and companies over the years, um, both being on your own as well as working for other, other people. Um, we, we kind of talk about a top-down approach and a bottom-up approach. And for the audience, this is something James and I have been talking a lot about, and we'll get into a lot of tactics over the past year of talking through this about what does that mean? So when you grow, you can either hire a leader and have that leader build the team below them, or you hire the contributors to get to a point where you can invest the proper time and resources as a leader, and you build the bottom up. So those are couple different approaches that we've seen. Some work, some don't. Some work because not necessarily of the model, but because of all sorts of different reasons. But um, that's ultimately what kind of we're going to talk about today. So James, kind of talk through a little bit about that. What have you seen in the trenches and as you've been working with clients, top down, bottom up, what's that mean to you? Yeah, well, and, and um, I, I'll start with just commenting on your resume, right? This idea that you called it a confused resume. Um, I, I uh, have a very similar resume, and I guess I'm thinking that that might be one of the first connection points between you and I is instead of having a very specialized or very narrowly focused experience, we've been really curious, and our curiosity has taken us and broadened our, our experience, which I think creates um, a perspective for us that is more universal, that can be more universally applied than maybe many others, right? So because, our, because we've had so many different experiences in different industries, I've worked in over 100 industries over the last 17 years uh, in in business, um, coaching folks. And um, yeah, man, I mean, this the, 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 the best truths are universal truths. They can be applied across the board. And so this idea of bottom-up, top-down transformation is one of those universal truths. I mean, a business owner or leadership team or board of directors has to decide um, what is best for the company at this point in time. And the reason they have to do that is because it's really hard to find one person who can do it all, a leader who has a perspective that can deliver everything a company needs at any one point in time. But when transformation is important, um, you've got to be thinking about whether it's top down, which is a transformation approach from my perspective, I'd love to hear yours, which is led by strategy, right? So it's strategy first, execution second, bottom up from my perspective is execution first, strategy second. In other words, the strategy is in place it's changing. It's not going to be as pivotal as really getting our people and our systems and our leaders aligned so they're executing on what we've got. What do you think? What's your perspective? Yeah, yeah, that's good. I, I like strategy and execution of 
thinking about those in the top half and the bottom half. And I, you know, I'm, I'm there in thinking that, you know, there's a lot of merit in trying to put a strategy together and then go execute or else what are you really executing? But I think there's also the flip side to that is don't overthink it. And that's the the hard part is you could spend tons of time and money burning calories, burning dollars, trying to talk to people and figure out strategy. And I'm not against it, but I think what you said is it's, it's really about the right stage of the company. Where are you at in that transformation? And there, there's there's merit in just saying, let's go do it and figure it out along the way. And I don't think everything needs a strategy. So yes, I like the strategy and execution. I think there, that can also be aligned to um, leader and doer and understanding the differences. Um, maybe the two can be aligned. Maybe the, the two can be slightly different. But um, I think that's ultimately when you're at the starting point of a company growing, that's, you need traction, right? You need to get the, you need customers, you need to get feedback, you need feedback from the market, feedback from the customers. Why are they buying? Why are they buying continually? And then as you're growing, it's, it's a, it's the whole, uh, um, what is it? Too many chiefs, not enough Indians, right? You don't want to have a team full of C-suites with nobody actually doing the work. And that's where this, these whole, this moment in time is how do you bring the right people that are guiding a strategy, creating, guiding, and executing the strategy are three different things. And you, you generally need three different types of roles. Sometimes one person can facilitate, but um, I think that's a great breakdown strategy versus execution and putting a lot of a, a lot of emphasis onto one or the other and <clears throat> um, relevant to the right stage of the company. So good call out there. Yeah, thank you. Well, so I'm curious, Ed, when you, you and I are both, you and I can both operate as fractional executives for organizations. So we face this challenge all the time, right? We're, we're contacted by folks that need help or are curious about whether we can help them. And then we typically go through a process where we try to understand where they are so we can decide whether or not we're, we're the right fit or not, or maybe somebody else in our circle might be a better fit. When you think about, um, we think about this idea of top-down, bottom-up strategy versus execution in terms of leading an effort, where do you fit? And what do you typically look at in an organization to determine whether or not um, you can help? Yeah, I think this is a, <clears throat> this is chock full of a lot of, a lot of different answers because it's all based on where the company is. But what I like doing is to try and, and, and I've done well in this area. I've also failed a lot in this area from my own, you know, discovery calls and sales process. But what I'm learning more and more is to really try and find out where, what what the client wants. I may have an idea from the outside looking in of what they need, but that doesn't mean that they're ready to take that leap. So what what I tend to look at is where I, I like looking at a couple of things. One is investment into the different the, the company structure. So who's doing what? Do you have a marketing team or a marketing agency? Do you have your internal sellers or do you outsource your lead gen? Do you have um, customer support, customer success, people that are doing implementation and delivery of products or services? Do you have developers? Do you outsource the developing? A lot of that is is really helpful to understand how much investment is going towards what types of activities. Time and time again, I see a, a sales organization that'll have 15 sales reps and a, a manager, a leader, and a, maybe a lead or something. And then they have like one person and a marketing agency. And, and I look at that to say, well, all you're doing is you've got the money to invest, which is great, but you're deploying, you're, you're under-deploying salespeople. Qualified, trained salespeople are really tough to develop and, and, and cultivate. And you're having them do often very unskilled work. And, and I don't want to diminish the profession by saying this, but 
it's it's a really easy math problem of if you're just expected to be on the phone pounding out 100 calls a day, we got all everyone knows the success rate in doing that is single digits, low single digits. Best case scenario, if I call 100 people and I talk to 10, my, my strikeout rate is 90%. So why do I want a qualified, skilled resource effectively striking out 90% of the time to try and garner the at-bats or the good conversation? So I look at that to say, is the sales team generating all the leads or is any of that coming from marketing? And if it's not, then there's a challenge, but it comes down to looking at how you're investing in the contributor roles and how that's relating to the bigger piece of the pie. So I look at that from the revenue team of marketing resource investment, sales resource investment, and customer success, customer experience investment, and try to understand out of those three teams, what percentage is the highest. So that's kind of step one. And then step two is understanding the span of control. I'd say span of control in, in terms of leader to team. So is it you know, one sales leader to six sales reps? Is it one to three and the sales leader is got a partial quota? Is it a head of marketing that's running the agency, but also writing content and campaigns? So trying to understand that ratio as well to say how much of a leader's time are they spent leading their team versus being a doer? And the more conversations that I have with clients to understand how much money is spread out across the revenue organization in the investments, and then if there are leaders, how much of the leader's work is is a doer versus a leader. That helps me understand maybe where they're at right now in a stage and how they can get to the next level. Because again, there's different ways to do that. If I want to help improve or make the span of control more efficient, there's some things that we can work to facilitate to do. There may be times where maybe require a reinvestment of, hey, maybe let's move a couple of these salespeople to account managers. Let's figure out a better upsell, retention, renewal strategy that they can handle? How do we really allocate some budget from one to the other? And how do we focus on demand generation versus using an agency that we're dumping money into paying paid ads that aren't generating any leads? So so it's a big conundrum, but those are the things, those are the two areas I look at is resource allocation on the revenue team and then understanding the leadership to the span of control from leadership to contributor. Yeah, I love that. Uh, And it's, you know, it's it's interesting as I hear you talk and it gives me a chance to think about how I would respond. And so what I'm what I'm connecting based on your conversation is this idea that strategy will imply or re- will imply a certain structure required. Let's say for the for the revenue organization, right? So if we're thinking about that organization that includes branding, marketing, which and marketing includes demand gen, legion, et cetera, and then we have uh, maybe an SDR team, a sales team, and we have some sort of uh, onboarding team, customer success team, account t- management team, et cetera. But all these folks that have to come together and work together to drive revenue both new and revenue from existing relationships, there's a level of complexity there, but there's also a level of connection required between all those folks to make this thing work. So when I think of strategy and I then think of structure, roles and goals, I think about how is somebody who's going to think about how all this is going to work together well and and not just think about deploying point solutions, like for example, an outsourced lead gen effort that isn't really thoughtfully tied into the entire uh, to the entire organization that we've built. Am I on the right track? Yeah, for sure. And I like the distinction between point solution um, that is is very one singular focus versus something that's actually aligned to the greater good, whether it's aligned to the strategy, relying to other tactics. So, so yes, I think this is the you know we talk about levers. You know, we talk about all these growth levers that we can pull, and how do you determine? what lever to pull at what point in the growth journey, where you're at and versus where you want to go. And, that, and that's hard. I think that's why people like you and me 
are out here making a living doing things like this because it's not a one size fits all. It's not the same. We can have our own respective playbooks, but I'm sure you take that playbook and you deviate and you align to each each particular customer where they're at, where they want to go. You look, you do gap analysis. I know that. So you're really trying to figure you're aligning that playbook and you're customizing it to each client. And that's exactly what this is all about. I I love the the um, the thing you bring up about. Um, out lead gen, outsourced lead gen. There's th- these companies are a dime a dozen nowadays, but I'll say that you know, they get a bad rap in a lot of in a lot of cases. But they're not bad. And the, the challenge is, are you trying to use them as the cure all to ge- to generate leads? Like, oh, I'll pay you a couple thousand, five thousand, ten thousand bucks a month, and all of a sudden I'm just, it's just going to rain leads. Well, if that's the expectation, that that will never ever work. So, where outsourced lead generation is great is if you've got a market for them to hone in on. You've got some buyer personas. You've got some good pain points that they struggle with. You've really tested some messaging that's going to help as they connect with buyers. That's what's going to work or help work that process a lot better. So to your point, a point solution being an outsourced lead gen, if it's just here, go call some people and see what you can do versus call some people that are in this industry that have this pain point that are in buy mode right now and then produce a meeting now we're looking at doing something that's not a point solution but it's part of a orchestrated strategy so i like that scenario or that that comparison a lot yeah cool cool um yeah and and um unfortunately as we move down uh, the line from top to bottom right and i'm just i'm just making this up this is not part of a formal model but as we're talking i'm aligning all this stuff strategy structure what should the organization look like then we talk about roles and goals so what roles in that structure and what goals should they have right now we're beginning to think about how we move toward execution um after that i think about playbook process pipeline and people and the four p's and we we reverse that so we begin with the end in mind right when you think about people are the tip of the arrow this is you know everything happens at that i like to use the phrase i was taught this by an old mentor of mine um you know it happens when you're belly to belly with the buyer, those belly-to-belly conversations, whether it's live and in person or virtual, <laughs> belly-to-belly, mm-hmm. um, all of that lines up to empower that person. If you need salespeople, then how do you empower or position that person for max success? And there's got to be a connection between the roles and goals that you set for them and the actual people that you deploy. And that connect, those connectors are the playbook you put in place, the process that they will follow that's predictable and repeatable, the pipeline that you will use to make sure that you're on point and that all the resources you're deploying are are producing the way you expect, and the people to make sure those people not only have the natural skills and abilities and experiences to be effective, but they're also complemented with a system that can uh, make sure that whatever they're doing is predictable and repeatable and uh, efficient. Um, That word efficient is thrown around a lot, but what we find today is by the time organizations get to the point where they're deploying people, there is such inefficiency built into the playbook process and pipeline that they oftentimes have to overstaff. And uh, we find that we can, when we organize uh, a sales team in in particular, uh, we're able to double or triple year over year growth without hiring another body just by improving the efficiency of that organization. So this is a great example of how strategy can be dead on but our execution is just off enough to make us feel like we're failing when in fact it's it's everything is made just maybe just right it's just how are you executing are you looking at are you are you able to identify those um those hidden barriers uh in the shadows of the organization and if you can 
and you then you can effectively make the shift and get yourself out of the hole. Yeah, so I like the roles and goals that you said, and, and I think this is absolutely the foundation of that whole process. Because if you if you mess that up, you're you're just leaving it up to chance, destiny, whatever you believe in. <laughs> you leave it up to that instead of something predictable. That's ultimately what you're trying to do. And granted, none of us have a crystal ball, even when it comes to VCs and PEs who want a great forecast. It's we don't have a crystal ball. We can just do our best guess. But you're trying to just hedge your bet. And what I like about what you said about roles and goals is how do you, this is where I become a critic of job descriptions all day long. And I've written some really terrible ones in hindsight, but I've also written a couple of good ones. And I think this is what, when you try to separate in the section, job responsibilities and qualifications, and it's being very intentional. What are the job responsibilities? What are they actually going to be doing? And if they're leading, what are they leading specifically? And if they're doing, what are they doing specifically? And maybe you don't put this all in the job description, but at least during the interview process, it's got to be an open conversation of what the expectation is of this role. Hey, in the first 30 days, 90 days, six months, one year, whatever time limit, this is where I expect, this is where we expect you to be. And it, it, it may not be fully baked out, but at least have some kind of idea so that someone knows what they're aspiring to. So I think that's the, when you start talking about roles, secondarily is the goals. And the goal, I, I follow the whole, I, I think it was uh, Peter Drucker that came up with the SMART goals. Um, don't quote me on that, but you know, using the the SMART for SMART goals, defining a goal, is it specific? Is it measurable? Is it actionable? Is it relevant? Is it time-based? And those are helpful to, um, to, to helping somebody come into place. You know, if you're a sales rep, it's easy to say, okay, well, I measured on quota. Well, look at all the activities that have to go into achieving quota. It's, do you have list of contacts to call? Do you know what roles that they're in? Do you have some insight about them? Do you know about the persona? How are you accessing them? Through what channels? Are you doing that once a month? Are you doing it 10 times a month? What's your cadence? A lot of these things are are very much contributing to the outcome of trying to generate a dollar. So failing to define the role and the goal absolutely not only sets you up for a potential failure, but significantly reduces that ability to be to have anything predictable as an outcome. So I think that's really extremely important when looking at scaling an organization. And and I use scale intentionally because scale often gets used with grow and they're two are different. Scaling is supposed to add, add, contribute something beneficial that doesn't consume resources. So that could be profitable growth. It could be, you know, being able to like quotas, a great example is uh, if, if you're trying to put processes in place to have 10 sales reps and they have a million dollar quota, can you make investments where instead of having a million dollar quota, can they achieve 1.5? Well, if I've done that at a lower investment than $500,000 per sales rep, great, I'm scaling. If not, I'm just I'm just growing. So scaling a team or scaling is, is, is absolutely necessary in order to grow profitably. And I think that's those are the things that need to be looked at is hiring. You, you talk a lot about this is, you know, hiring for fit. What does that mean? And how do you how do you really hire for fit? You got to understand the skill set required. Why is it a skill set? Why does somebody need X amount of years experience in order to do this job successfully? Why do they need industry experience? Why do they need these scenarios experiences? And why is that important in order to help them in that onboarding journey or that growth journey? So all that said, the roles and goals is, is absolutely critical as it relates to anything predictable. So I'm, I'm with you there. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm noticing that, you know, in your, in the comments you've made, you know, the only real way to create the scale you're talking about is you, you is by knowing the reason for the success that you've achieved, you know, and, and uh, I've been part of 
many organizations, right? Six organizations that that exited, um, you know, for in the you know many of which exited in the billions. So I think the total was like I think I totaled it once, like over three billion. In in and those experiences were they get great experiences. Lots of failures involved there. Lots of wasted money. Lots of burned um, cycles there. But what was really critical across all of them was this idea that the more we understood why we were failing or succeeding, the more likely we were able to get ourselves out of that. And you know, today you can shorthand it by talking about data. Are you but are you tracking data or information? But data is okay if you understand what you're looking for, know what data is important and what isn't, and then understand how to uh, how to interpret that data and analyze that data, and then. Are you making conclusions that are accurate? So there's a lot, there's a lot involved here. And if we're if we're thinking about how sales organizations can scale, oftentimes we think about CRM and other tools that collect data as being administrative bothers or um, just administrative wastes of time. But what they really force us to do is to build a process that gives us insight into why we succeed and why we fail. And if we know that, then we can make adjustments and we can continuously improve. And we can identify roles and goals that make sense. We can build uh, job descriptions that are accurate, that attract top performers who know whether or not we've just pulled a job description off the internet, copied it and put our name on it, or, or whether we've done something thoughtful. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, in the easiest test, again, I wouldn't suggest anyone just ask a salesperson this question, but, you know, marketing teams should be asking, and I know would love to ask, but they have to interpret the answers carefully. Uh, and the question the question is asked of salespeople, and the question is, why do people buy from you? Right? Think, and we just identify your, your last five accounts that you would love to replicate. Why did they buy? Now they might you might get a cursory answer like they loved our product, product market fit. Uh, I had a great relationship, but you've got to go below that stuff to look for the whys that are predictable and repeatable. Because if those whys that are predictable and repeatable aren't expressed in your sales process, if they're not expressed in your job descriptions, if they're not expressed in other areas of the business, then you really can't build a mechanism, a process, an organization that can create predictable, repeatable results on demand. You're really winging it. You're really just one side of getting lucky, right? Anytime somebody tells me, hey, we're 50% on our hiring, we're 50% here or there, that's really a guess, right? We know that the that successful salespeople, the odds of them closing a forecast deal are still about the same as winning a pass bet at a Vegas crafts table, right? About 49.3%. It's still a shot in the dark. So unless, so what's really cool about this though is, you know, if you're not an organization that's paying attention to the why, then you can't build that predictable, repeatable system. But what's cool about this is the understanding that you need to have a meaningful adjustment in that number is low. You don't really have to, you don't have to, you don't have to change the world. You don't have to transform the entire organization. You just have to get a little bit better. And that little bit of improvement can have a exponential impact on performance. Well, then that's, that's the big, I think that's a great takeaway too. And, and a good point to kind of transition into wrapping this first episode up, but that's a good point about these celebrating these small wins and the, and the baby steps because growth is a journey. It's not overnight. It's not, you know, follow these steps and all of a sudden you're successful. It is about, the, the small victories. And, you know, that, that just reminds me. So I said smart goal and I think I, I used A for actionable, but A is attainable. And I think that's what, so I misspoke earlier, but that's exactly what you talked about is these small little wins need to be attainable. And you can't just say, oh, I'm at a million dollars a year right now. I want to get to a hundred million next year. You can have like 
lofty goals, fine, but don't let that be the driver of success. So let success happen through creating these steps that are attainable for you. And I think that's, that's absolutely critical. So, all right. So we th- thank you for everybody for tuning in. We're kind of winding down here, but we wanted to share a little bit about what we kind of banter about the things we talk about. I mean, this, this conversation literally epitomizes every time we've met for cigars and drinks, because we just, we just start, we just start jiving on this stuff. And this is what I love talking about. And I'm excited to bring other guests on here to, to talk about these same things. A lot of this is going to be very unprepped, unscripted kind of free flow because we're all in the same battle trying to do things and trying to figure out the next road for tomorrow. Um, so this is what this is what's got me excited. So we're hoping to bring uh, CEOs on the podcast that have either, you know, had some growing pains that they can talk about and share, people that are embarking on remarkable journeys that we're interested in hearing about, um, different partners within the industry, people that are seeing it, that are helping companies grow that are, whether it's technology, process, people, whatever the case may be, we're trying to look at people that can have an influence in this thing called growth. And that's what we're looking to have some people on the podcast. So it's going to be focused on this. We're going to be talking about tries and tribulations on um, on growth because it's it's just not a one one size fits all approach. So so this was good. Jimmy, any closing remarks for everybody? No, I think uh, I think what's cool is despite, you know, having spent 30 years in the biz, I'm still learning. I know this, you've spent, you're not quite as old, so I'll date you. But <laughs> what's cool is, you know, you 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 never stop learning as long as you start asking the questions or as long as you never stop asking the questions. And um, man, there is always something new. There's always something disrupting your world out there. And it's always worthwhile hearing from smart people who've been there, done that. And it's not about big moves. It's about those tiny incremental shifts. And hopefully we can bring some information that can help you guys make those small incremental shifts to get you where you want to be. Yeah. All right. Well said. Appreciate it. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in. Look forward to having you listen to future episodes.